Good morning, everyone. Good to see a pretty full house here, and I'm sure lots joining us online as well. Uh, a quick announcement. You may have noticed uh, over the last several months that Melissa Weir has gained some girth. <laughs> She's not smuggling pumpkins out of the grocery store. There's actually a baby in there. And that means we have to have someone come in and take up the slack for all the stuff that she does around here during her mat leave, which will begin after Trunk or Treat. We're holding on to her for that last big event. And so this is just to let the church family know uh, that Becky Farron will be coming on uh, for however long uh, Melissa needs to be away on her mat leave. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons that you'll notice uh, in the AGM notes that Dan is not standing for elders. So Dan's going to help us do bookkeeping and stuff. He's going to keep his finger in the financial pie, but he can't actually be a director or elder of the organization while someone is on staff here. So that's why you might have noticed that in terms of the elder thing. Secondly, uh, as was mentioned, life groups are starting up. This is the book. Uh, group leaders, today you can get your book along with this amazing study guide that Allison put together. And so leaders will have the book a week early, and then next week everybody else can pick up their books. And um, the idea of this nine to ten week season of this, of this life group is that you may end up finding yourself in a group that you weren't normally in. We have found hosts that are willing to leave their bestest friends and host some other people so they can meet some new friends. And we have leaders who have agreed to leave their best buddies and host and lead some other groups so that they can make new friends. And so there will be a little bit of blending of groups, different nights, different places. Some people will be meeting here, some in homes. But for this time leading up to Christmas, we just want to sort of mix things up a little bit. It's a book study. It's a super easy to read. Uh, it's fun. It's called The Imperfect Disciple and uh, very appropriate for me, very appropriate for most of us, I think. But we'll be starting that next week. Okay, I just wanted to say those things because it's really important that we get involved in those uh, coming up. Um, a couple of weeks ago, as we celebrated our Communion Sunday, we spent some time considering, if you remember, the imagery and the reality of God's invitation to his feast. Do you remember that? We were talking about feasting. And I said we should keep that in mind in a couple of weeks as we come to Thanksgiving because we're going to sit down, maybe some of you yesterday, some of you today, some of you tomorrow, to an actual feast. And we can use this feasting time to remember the one who is our true feast and has prepared the feast and invited us to the feast and keeps us at the feast, and that is God. And now this week, as Thanksgiving is now fully upon us and we look around the table and we consider all the ways in which God has blessed us, I'm hoping that we can consider today all the ways that God is good. Not just the ways that God is good, but the measure, the nature, the very essence of God's goodness, that we can meditate on this. And there's three key points that I want to get out of two sentences in James chapter 1. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, or if you want to tap there on your phone, we're looking primarily at James chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. And while you're turning there, I will just pray. Father God, it is by your Holy Spirit that spiritual things are made known to us. We cannot know you except that you reveal yourself to us. 
So I just pray as we read your word, as we study it, that your Holy Spirit is here to guide my thoughts, to guide our thoughts, and to lift the scales from our eyes, to remove the distractions from our heart, and to sharpen our minds, to discern what is holy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, James 1, 17 to 18, here's what James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And the three points that I want to get from those two sentences is this. God's goodness is comprehensive, it is immutable, and it is eternal. Comprehensive, immutable, and eternal. So first of all, we can understand from this that God is comprehensively good. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. James states that there is nothing good and nothing perfect that you encounter in this life or this world that is not from God, no matter where you encounter it. Every good thing, every perfect thing comes from God. John the Baptist explained to his followers in John chapter 3, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so this is the sense in which God is comprehensively good. Every good, every perfect gift is from him. The total of anything good that we discover or receive comes from God. And the word that James uses for good here is agathos. It means beneficial. So God's gifts are not good like, say, ice cream is good, because ice cream is good, but ice cream is not always beneficial. But James says here that God's gifts are always good and they're beneficial to us in every way. Ice cream may not cause our health to flourish, but God's gifts are so good that every one of them is meant and causes us to flourish. His goods are more than just for our happiness, our joy. They're also for our flourishing. They are for our progress. They are for our benefit. God is comprehensively good because his gifts are good for us in every way. And James emphasizes this completeness or fullness of God's goodness by adding on the phrase, and every perfect gift. So they're good and perfect. And the word perfect that James uses here is teleos. And teleos carries with it the idea of perfection of the gift, such that it is final or it is complete, that it hits the mark, that it accomplishes its final objective. That's what teleos means. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.13 when he's describing the benefits that Jesus gave to the church when he ascended. He says that Jesus gave those in order that we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature. That's the same word, teleos. James said perfect. Paul says mature. That's what it means. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so God's gifts are completely beneficial they're, comp they're always for our flourishing. They're never against our flourishing. And these godly gifts that he gives, they hit their mark exactly. They achieve their objective for us in our maturity and our perfection. 
That's the comprehensive nature of God's goodness. These are the kinds of gifts that we receive, James says, from the Father of lights, he calls God here. Now contrast those kinds of gifts to the kinds of gifts we receive from our earthly fathers. Are they always beneficial? Are they always suitable? Are they always sufficient? Just think, Christmas is coming. Think of the gifts that you get at Christmas from your father, or maybe even from your spouse, or maybe your children. Are they always beneficial? Are they always suitable? Are they always sufficient? Are they always for our flourishing? Jesus says in Luke 11, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead, give a fi- instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give, and the, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, even you earthly fathers know how to at least give reasonably good gifts. Right? You're smart enough not to give your kids serpents and scorpions. But sometimes I wonder if we know much more than that. I mean, some of the gifts we get from our fathers, right? Even our spouses make you wonder who they were giving the gift for. I once got Wendy a clothes iron. It was a really expensive and nice clothes iron. And I got it because it would help her iron my shirts. It's a good gift, right? Is it not? She said it was not a good gift. Shortly after that, I gave her the gift of me getting dry cleaning every month. So she never had to iron again. That was a good gift. You see, I was learning. I was learning what a good gift was, right? But we all do this. We, we give gifts that aren't perfect, aren't for their flourishing, aren't beneficial to them. I mean, I'm tempted to get Isaac a closet organizer so that he can, you know, it's for him. It's, so, it's, it's, it's a gift for him. It's so he can clean up his room. It, it's really for him. It's not for me. Right? Isn't it? We can't always count on others to give us perfect gifts meant only for our flourishing and that their gifts would hit the mark perfectly to accomplish the perfect outcome in our life and maturity in us. But unlike us, unlike earthly fathers, God never gives in a mercenary way. He never gives with a selfish motive. God can give so comprehensively and perfectly in every possible way because God needs nothing from us. Paul says in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, this is why God can be a comprehensive, good, and perfect giver, because he does not have any selfish motive when he gives. There's nothing we can offer him that makes him any better or, or makes him any richer or increases his stature in any way, so when he gives, it is always for our benefit. He is comprehensive and complete in his giving in that he never has a mercenary or selfish motive, and he also has no expectation of return because there's nothing we can return to him. He gives without any basis on the merit of the receiver. The gifts of God are not based on what we deserve or what we've earned because he needs nothing. And so we can only receive from God empty-handed. And so James is saying here, in every way, as we go through Scripture, God is comprehensive and complete and total in the goodness of his gift-giving. That's the first thing. Think about that when you think about the gifts that God gives us. 
But the second thing, not only is God comprehensively good, but God is immutably good. As we continue in verse 17, we see that these good gifts come to us from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And I picked this up as the title of our message today because I think it's very important we understand this quality of God's goodness and of God himself. And understand why it's so important that James would choose to highlight it in this context. It's kind of a weird statement, isn't it, when you stop to think about it? James is talking about how good God is, and he thinks the you know, important thing to highlight about God in his goodness is not his love or his mercy or his compassion or those types of things. Instead, what he highlights is that God has no variation or shadow of change. What does that have to do with God's goodness? Why is it important that James picks up on this, what I call immutability, which is just a fancy theological word that means not capable of changing? In God, James says, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And that's really important to know about his goodness. James is saying there's something about God's goodness we should know about his unchanging nature. Those two are connected. God is immutably good. God is not capable of changing his goodness. And I think this is what it means. The, the immutability of God speaks to the inherent perfection of all of God's attributes. Everything that God is stays exactly as it is because if God could change, it would imply that God could improve somehow. And God cannot improve. God cannot change for the worse, obviously, but God cannot change for the better because there is nothing better to become for God. God is perfectly good, glorious, righteous, loving, just, merciful, joyful, happy, satisfied, gracious, knowledgeable, present, powerful, generous, compassionate, truthful, wise, upright, you name it. God is perfect in every single attribute and he never changes. He is immutable in his goodness, in all of his qualities. God is perfect in every possible way, and thus he's incapable of changing who he is, either towards himself or towards us. Essentially, it means God is being. He's not becoming anything. When Moses asked God who he should tell the nation sent him, God says in Exodus 13, what does he say? I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. That's it. God just is. God never was anything. He just is. Perfect, always unchanging. In Psalm 102 says, You laid the foundation of the earth, and you made the heavens with your hands, and they will perish, but you remain forever. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? James says this immutable, unchanging nature of God is fundamentally important to us understanding God's goodness. Why? Because it means that his gifts never change in their goodness. The immutability of God means that the knowledge that he requires to care for us properly is ex exactly in this moment is always at his disposal. It means the power required to give what we need is never absent from him. 
It means his desire for our flourishing and maturity never wavers. It means his availability is never removed. Again, unlike earthly father gift givers who do not always know what it is that we need or don't always have the power or ability to give what we need, even if they did know it, earthly fathers don't always desire our good, at least not always first, ahead of their own or some others. And earthly fathers are not always available or approachable. But the immutability of God says he always knows, he's always able, he's always willing, he's always available, present, and powerful to do it. But that's not how earthly fathers are. I know for a fact that Isaac plots and schemes, sometimes even in collusion with his mother, when is the right time to approach me with his request? Right? He has to read the signs of his earthly father and in reading the signs, figure out when it is a good time to ask for the thing that he needs from me. He has to know when is the best time for approachability and generosity in order to maximize his chances with his earthly father. But the immutability of God means that is not so with us with our Heavenly Father. James wants us to know, and it's important to our understanding of God's goodness, that we don't have to read the signs in the Heavenly Father and figure out when is the right time when He's in a good mood to come to Him with our requests. Because God is always good, always available, always for our good, never changing, never wavering, never not there. Never not knowing, never not powerful, never not able. That's what the immutability of God means. God is omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He is omniscient. His desire for us never wavers. It means you can't make God love you less, and it means you can't make God love you more. So James says there is no variation in God, and he says there is no shadow There's no shadow in God. There's no shadow of sin. But there's also no reason for us to fear when God is our Father. There's no shadow that we need to be afraid of in God when we can truly call Him our Father. We never have to worry that our Heavenly Father is up to some sort of trick or some scheme or some prank or He's just yanking our chain for some reason because, you know, He's capricious. He is not up to anything except to do good for us. Now, if God isn't your father, then his immutability becomes a, not a blessing, but a warning. Because God's immutability, if he's not your father, means he will not relent in his judgment of your sin. He will not relent in the justice that he will bring for his perfect glory and for his children. He will not change his mind when you approach the throne and simply sort of ah shucks you into heaven with a nudge and a wink. God's immutability is a warning to those who are not his children But God's immutability is an incredible encouragement and blessing to those who are his children. I never had to fear my dad if he showed up on the schoolyard. The other kids, and maybe the teachers even, had to fear if my dad showed up on the schoolyard. But I never had to fear because he was always for me and never against me. So the children of God never have to fear God. There's no shadow in him that he is somehow out to harm them or even... Treat them capriciously. God is comprehensively good. God is immutably good. 
And James says that immutable inability to change is comforting and encouraging for his children. God's immutability is for our welfare. God is faithful to his promises and to his people. He cannot cease to be who he is. He will never change. And we are absolutely secure in the goodness of God towards us. Finally, God is eternally good. He's comprehensively good. He's immutably good. He's eternally good. Where does this come from? Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18, James says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's a weird sentence. What is James talking about here? Right? How does this speak to the eternality of God's goodness? And the way James has structured the sentence really speaks from eternity past through the present into eternity future. That's what I want us to see. James is talking about eternity historically and eternity futuristically. James says that God, let's look at, let's look at eternity past first. James says that God brought us forth, or more specifically, God caused us to be born. He uses the word apokeo. It's the bringing into being from pregnancy. So God hasn't brought us forth like a magician brings forth a card and a magic trick. God hasn't brought us forth like we bring a student up on stage to receive a diploma. That's not the bringing forth that God does. James says God has brought us forth literally by birth into new life. And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, apokeo, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, I'm sure we all remember the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, right? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Right? This is what God is doing. He is causing people to be born into a new life. And James here is speaking to our past as children of God. If you are able to call God your Father today, and you have been born of the Spirit, and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you have this new spiritual life to the, pe- the kinds of people James is talking to, then that event took place in your past. It's an event that had to happen for you to become, to be caused to be born, to be brought forth into this childhood of this good Father. And James is clear in the way he's made this sentence that God causes that birth. God brought us forth as his children. James says he has caused us to be born again. So the greatest good that God could offer, which is the regeneration, the salvation, the justification, the sanctification, our being saved and made right for eternity with God and the relationship restored and all the good that comes from our relationship with that restored relationship with God, that analogy, I think, that James makes clear is that God does that. God caused that to happen. And the analogy of a new birth is apt because I don't know any children who caused themselves to be born. Do you? I don't know any children who even requested to be born. They didn't write a letter ahead of time saying, hey, if you guys could, you know, have a baby, that'd be great. So it's a good metaphor to say God causes our new birth. You say, okay, Paul, that's a good metaphor, but what does that have to do with eternity past? 
Well, here's the thing. When, when that happens in our life as believers, and, and, and all you believers out there will be tracking with me, when we first come to believe there is a God, and we first come to believe that we are sinners, and that Jesus is the answer to our problem, at that point in the process, it seems like we are doing a lot to become a Christian. We are seeking, we are believing, we are repenting, we are accepting, we are walking in new life. But then as you mature as a Christian, you look back and you realize that our choice of God was predated by his choice of us. Right? That he chose us before we chose him. That we didn't decide to get born any more than a baby can decide to get born. God's choice of us predated our choice of him. And for some reason, that alarms some people. As if it is a surprise that our Heavenly Father decided before we did that we would be born again of Him. I mean, we're not surprised that our parents made the decision that we were born, but sometimes we get uncomfortable and confused when we come to the realization that God chose us to be born even before we chose Him. And here's eternity past, because the question then becomes, when did God make that choice? Well, we see that God is eternally good because God's choice that we would be born into his family was a choice that was made in eternity past. James says, of his own will, God caused us to be born. It was God's will, God's choice. And when did he make that choice? Ephesians chapter 1 is probably the most clear in describing it. Paul says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. So here's the eternal goodness of God. Eternity past. God's goodness towards us was in his mind before the foundation of the world. It was in some timeless reality where there was no space-time continuum at all. There was only the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a perfect and eternal stage of being. And that is when, if we can say when, that God set his will upon us and he chose us for this new birth and this new life. From eternity past, every believer in Christ has been in the mind of God as his anticipated children. You've never not been in the mind of God as his children. His goodness was set on you before the foundation of the world. But God is also good to us into eternity future. Because James goes on to say, not only were we born, and not only do we know that choice was made before the foundation of the world, he says he goes on to say that of this new birth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And that's kind of funny language. We don't say first fruits a lot anymore. But all that means is that we have started in our new spiritual birth, in our new spiritual life, the beginning of something new. We are a kind of first fruits. We are not yet become what we will be, but we will become what Jesus has already gone ahead of us to be. We will be a new creation in a new eternal body, a resurrection body that never wears out in an eternal heaven that will never be destroyed. So Paul says this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, there's the key word, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or since died. 
So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body, it is raised as a spiritual body. What's Paul saying? He's saying Christ was the first first fruits. And James says we too are a kind of first fruits of what's coming. We're going to follow after Christ. And what do we follow after Christ into, Paul says? An eternal resurrection body. So God's good choice from eternity past has resulted for those that are born again into this new life into a goodness that extends all the way into eternity future and eternity in heaven with the Father and the Son and the Spirit where every tear will be wiped away, where death is defeated and pain and suffering are no more. So in two sentences, James has said, God is comprehensively good. God is immutably good, God is eternally good. There is nothing in the goodness of God that is excluded. There's no reason for us to imagine somehow that God is not good. And those three things may raise a lot of questions in your mind today, really good questions. So meditate on them. Meditate on the comprehensive nature, the immutable nature, the eternal nature of God's good, and all the stuff we kind of quickly unpack there. Those are good questions to meditate on. You will never run out of enthusiasm to meditate on the goodness of God. But the most important question out of all of that that you can have, especially for anyone who may have never knew that this is who God was before today, maybe in your mind you thought God was somebody different than this, And you never liked that God that you thought that he was. So the question for those people is, how do I receive this perfect, complete, unchanging, eternal goodness of God in my life? How do do I get it? Right? How can I know that God is my Father and means only good to me and that there is no shadow I need to fear and that he will invariably be for me and not against me for my flourishing and his glory? Well, James tells us that too. He says we were born into this new life that we became first fruits in by the word of truth. He gives us the hint right there, the word of truth. The word of truth is the word of God. It's the whole counsel of Scripture. It's the Bible. But it's not only that. It's even more specifically, it's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus is the eternal and perfect Son of God, that, that Jesus came down from heaven as the Messiah, as the Anointed One. He came to live a perfect life as a human being, a perfect life that no human could ever live. And the reason he lived that perfect life is so that he could be a perfect sacrifice. Because only a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the sins of all of humanity with a perfect God. And so he died a death on the cross that we could never die. And he did that sacrificially to carry all of the weight of God's righteous wrath to carry all of the fear that we should have of God away, to bear all the shame that we should feel so that we can stand before God counted as perfect, even though we're not, because we're imperfect disciples. And God says this is a gift. Remember, we're just talking about gifts today. This is the big gift. God says this is a gift. You cannot possibly measure up to it. You don't have anything that I need. 
your righteousness and your good works are all flawed in some way and you could never pay back the debt that you owe, but I will erase the debt. I give you this as a gift. You just have to receive it empty-handed. And so the answer to that question is, if we believe and trust that Jesus is who he says he is and we trust all that he has done is all that needs to be done, and we set our hope on him for our eternal life, then James says that word of truth will cause us to be born again. And remember, God is immutable. He is unchanging. He's promised it, and he will never revoke that promise. If you call on Jesus as your only hope, you will be born again. Because this is why. It's because the Father of lights that James talks about has made a way for this special kind of light to shine. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For God, who in, in the beginning said, Let the light shine out of darkness, right? He's referring to God the Creator. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has himself shone in the hearts to give in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the light that the Father of lights is shining for us today. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he really is who he said he is, and he's really done all that needs to be done, and you can hope in him, and God will be faithful to his promise, because God resurrected him from the dead three days later to see, say, see, I'm faithful. My promise can be trusted. That's how we participate in this comprehensive, immutable, eternal goodness of God. So this Thanksgiving, as a church family, let's just agree that we have much to give thanks for. Let's be a church that responds in worship to a God whose goodness is perfect and immutable and eternal. God who is different than every earthly idol or any other little G God and pretend God and puppet God that we might set up in our life. He is worthy of our worship and our praise because his goodness towards us is a safe resting place for our eternal souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning thank that you are comprehensive, immutable, and eternal in your goodness from eternity past to eternity future. If we can call you our Father, if we are your children, there is no shadow of change in you. Father God, let us give thanks today and tomorrow and every day afterwards like no other people on earth can give thanks because you are who you are. You're for our joy and your glory, and you are unrelenting in your pursuit of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.